0: Holy Spirit, come in power and might. Surprise us with your comfort and grace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is our last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Next week uh, we will be in Lent. And this idea of light sort of ebbing and darkness descending upon us. Now, I do say that tongue-in-cheek because the Advent may be the least repentant church during Lent. Uh, we show our repentance by stuffing our faces uh, with big cherry salad uh, and the like, and yet I pray that with the word preached uh, that uh, one of the things I can say about the Advent is it's a place where people are self-aware. Uh, they have a good understanding of themselves by God's grace, and so that even uh, in the midst of of uh, Lent, which may not be Lent in a lot of other Episcopal churches, but nonetheless, we're constantly being pushed toward the cross. And in our gospel reading this morning, uh, we see the same image of this brilliant light and the transfiguration, uh, Jesus' garment so radiant that no one could possibly get them so white here on earth. And as the scripture says, and then suddenly... Life went back to normal. And even in our reading from 2 Corinthians, St. Paul uh, addressing uh, the issue of life, the hardness of life, that there are times when we have these mountaintop experiences, but for most of us, day to day is lived in the valley. And it was very unusual in St. Paul's day To be so emotionally honest about oneself, but also about what life is like. It's unusual today to be so emotionally honest. We live in a world that is so plagued by the myth of perfection that we find ourselves constantly striving so that we might be thought of as worthy, and not falling behind. We're supposed to be strong. And if we're not, at the very least, we need to make people believe that all is well. I have a friend who has the bad habit of asking not just, how are you doing, which is a loaded question in and of itself, but um, how's your walk with the Lord? Now, how are you supposed to respond to that? Because it sounds as if he's just saying, hey, what's going on? Uh, But finally, I was alarmed to hear a friend of mine named Catherine uh, respond, frankly, terrible. Now, do you want to hear the rest? And of course, my friend was so taken back by the honesty uh, of her answer. And I just think to myself often when somebody asks you, how's your walk with the Lord doing? Or something as simple as, how are you? What would it look like? To be honest, well, our, our world doesn't foster any sort of environment where we can be honest. We have to talk about how wonderful our, our lives are, how wonderful our kids I mean, this is what Facebook is about, right? You put up all the beautiful pictures on Facebook, right? You don't, you've got the beautiful picture of your family. You don't put up the picture the, of the one taken right before where one of your children is biting the other one, and the baby is pulling your hair and you're scowling at your spouse. No one puts those up uh, for some reason. Because there's so much pressure on us to project perfection to the world. And this idea of living in the world is so radically different from the reality of life. And as it is expressed by St. Paul in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... See, Paul had this wonderful ministry to Corinth. He went and planted the church. And before you knew it, everything just went pear-shaped. And so that's why Paul had to write his first letter to the Corinthians, where he talked about all their woes and troubles and everything that was going on. And needless to say, he really didn't endear himself to the church in Corinth by doing that. And so already, even before this second letter went precipitated it, broke out, you had... Factions in the Church of Corinth who said, "I'm for Cephas, that is Peter. I'm for Apollos, another preacher," and others would get higher and holier than thou and say, "Well, I'm for Jesus." And Paul was not a great orator. He wasn't a great preacher. His message was very simple. And to add insult to injury, when the Corinthian church tried to give him money, Saint Paul refused, and they knew that Saint Paul had taken money from the Macedonian church, those backwoods, backwater people up in northern Greece. But he said, no thank you to the Corinthians. So Paul didn't necessarily endear himself, although he was still their father and God. And then come along the Judaizers, and this is what precipitates the second letter. They came in preaching the law and the adherence to the law. That is, it's not enough to be Christian Really all Christianity is, is Judaism for Gentiles. You must keep all of the dietary laws, all of the Levitical restrictions, all of that is still for you today. And if you want to be close to God, it's going to be marked by this outward conformity of your life. And not just what the law says, but you need to be perfect. You need to be really, really good. And if you do that... You will experience the power of God manifested in your life like you've never known before. And the church in Corinth said, that's what we want. We want to look good and we want power. And then St. Paul writes them. And rather than making an apology for himself, Paul writes to them of the gospel message of himself himself and humanity in general and he declares that we are but fragile jars of clay but we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to god and not to us we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted But not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is brutally honest about us and about St. Paul, so much so that when Paul writes that he was struck down, he's not talking about being physically struck down, he's admitting to being depressed. That's what that Greek word means. St. Paul is saying there are times where it is very dark in my life and I'm not sure where the light is going to come from. I'm trusting in God, but it's still dark. The pressure on St. Paul, on the church in Corinth, and the pressure on all of us is real. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not an issue of, oh, just let it roll off your back. But we feel it day in and day out. Former Yale professor William Duresowitz recently wrote a book called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life, flying off the shelves. (laughs) He writes, a large-scale survey found self-reports of emotional well-being, have fallen to the lowest levels in 25 years. 50% of college students report feelings of hopelessness. One third reported feeling so depressed that it was difficult to function in the last 12 months. These generation wires, these millennials, are stressed out, overpressured. They exhibit toxic levels of fear, anxiety, depression, emptiness, aimlessness, and isolation. In the Huffington Post, Madeline Levine writes, Pre-teens from affluent, well-educated families experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children in this country. As many as 22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable families suffer from clinical depression. And even the provost of Stanford University, one of the most selective universities in our nation, said this, increasingly, we are seeing students struggling with mental health concerns, ranging from self-esteem issues and developmental disorders to depression and anxiety eating disorder, self-mutilation behavior, schizophrenia, and suicidal behavior. These are just observations, not judgments, but the reality of the way things are. And so what do you say to not just these young people, but to those of us who feel the same pressure in our own lives? Do you say they're there? Try a little bit harder. Get over it. There's a silver lining behind every cloud. No, because for some of them, they can't even see it. That's why St. Paul writes here in in the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians that the minds of unbelievers have been blinded by Satan. Even if you were to place reality in front of them, the unbeliever couldn't see it. And even those of us who are believers, because our will and our emotions are still struggling with sin... We find it hard to believe that there's a way out of it. And yet Paul puts forward hope in the midst of despair, in darkness, in the message of the gospel, and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how did he do this? He did it through preaching thought it was funny when I looked up in Merriam-Webster what the definition of preaching was. It said, to write or speak in an annoying way about the right way to behave. <laughs> so here I am, a preacher, hopefully doing none of that. But preaching has such negative connotations in our day, and yet that's the primary means by which God gets his gospel out. And the word that Paul uses to describe what he's doing, uh, kerosene, is, not kerosene, but kerosene, uh, is rooted to the noun karyx, which means herald, like one who would walk through the street saying, The king has proclaimed this. Or a modern day equivalent would be uh, a news anchor, not like Brian Williams, but a news anchor who would just give you the facts. Just the truth, not embellished or wrapped up in personality, but here's the truth of the matter. Deal with it. How will you reckon with the truth? The truth about ourselves and the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Because what is the content of Paul's preaching? He says this, for what we preach is not ourselves. I'm not preaching Paul. I'm not preaching Andrew but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. This message of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead for you allows you to see life as it is and to actually acknowledge This is hard. This is dark. I'm feeling like I'm slipping into despair. True Christianity does not downplay the reality of life. The false preachers of that different gospel then and now will preach to you this form of prosperity and victory that is simply a projection. They, and still now, were unable to admit hardship or even being downcast. And yet here is Paul being emotionally honest It's a strange encouragement to be able to identify with the struggles of the great Apostle Paul. And yet what the Bible presents to us is this narrative of the reality of life. So when we read in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil." And in Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. What the Bible says is not, you know what, life of Jesus is great. What the Bible says is you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. You know what? It's going to pour down rain and the waters are going to rise up, but they will not overwhelm you. Yes, you are going to walk through fire, but you will not be burned or consumed because you have a foundation in Jesus Christ where the floods won't overwhelm you. And you have a fire that will not consume you because Jesus himself has been consumed by the fire so that you might not be burned. Our final hymn uh, this morning is by a man named William Cooper. Sometimes a light surprises. It's ironically, I've changed the tune because the tune's terrible. Perfectly. Nice. Uh, the tune is terrible. And so uh, we're ironically singing it to the tune of Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And I want you to understand the irony of this. But William Cooper compiled uh, a hymnal with John Newton called The Only Hymnal. In England in the late 1700s. Uh, it was a wonderful hymnal. If it weren't for that hymnal, we wouldn't have hymns like Amazing Grace, or There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, or uh, God Works in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform, or even sometimes a light surprises. And as they were writing these hymns, uh, they found a little bit of a setback, and that is that Cooper was often institutionalized for insanity and suicidal behavior. Newton tried and labored on to try to finish the hymnal, as he said, quote, to be a monument to his friendship with Cooper, who was in a mental institution. And in spite of his best intentions, Newton found that, quote, the mysterious providence of God had seemed fit to cross his wishes. Unable to complete the work without Cooper's assistance, Newton laid it down. Now, of course, Newton would go on to complete the hymnal, but Cooper would for the rest of his life battle depression and attempts at suicide until he died an old man. So as we sing this hymn, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. it It is the Lord who is risen with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining, to cheer it after the rain. This morning, if you are being crushed, if you are being driven to despair, persecuted, forsaken, struck down, even destroyed, know this. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been given a treasure. It is not of you, but is from God himself. It is the precious message of the gospel planted in your fragile little heart, you jars of clay, you cracked pots. And when it seems like the darkness might overwhelm you, remember this, child of God. The surprising light of God shines in the darkness and brings truth and life. And ultimately, the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.